Being spiritually blind is one of the most dangerous problems we can have. In its most general form, spiritual blindness is the inability to understand and apply spiritual truths in a personal way. The spiritually blind person can hear the truth. They cannot see what it means or how it would apply to them in their life. Spiritual blindness comes in three broad categories. One is spiritually deceived. The spiritually blind who are deceived think one way about themselves and their lives when they are really something far different. Think about the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. They thought they were rich, increased in goods, and in need of nothing when Jesus said they were really poor, blind, miserable, wretched, and naked. They were blind to their spiritual condition. Or think about the folks in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus talks about who at the end of time they say to him, Lord, Lord, expecting to enter the kingdom of heaven, but they're going to find out, depart from me, I never knew you. They were blind to their spiritual condition. There are the spiritually rebellious. The spiritually rebellious will reject spiritual truths out of hand without any consideration whatsoever. This is especially true when it comes to truth about Jesus and salvation. The spiritually rebellious have set their hearts and minds against Jesus and are blind to their desperate need for Him and His salvation. Then there are the spiritually dull. The spiritually dull believe spiritual truth, such as salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, and Jesus alone. But they miss any sort of deeper meaning in God's Word or in, in the things Jesus has said. The spiritually dull don't really see a need to go deeper. They're content to keep their faith, their devotion, and their relationship with Jesus at a surface level. So they often underestimate and or undervalue Jesus. In the message today, we'll see how Jesus deals with the spiritually blind. Open God's Word to Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 11. It should be on page 768 in the Pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Mark 8 and 11. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, demanding from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And the disciples had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with him. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not comprehend or understand? Do you still have your heart hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Twelve. And when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large basketfuls of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a man who was blind to Jesus and begged him to touch him. Taking the man who was blind by the hand, he brought him out into the village. And after spitting in his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people for I see them like trees walking around. Then he again, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored. And he began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Title of the message, 
is spiritual blindness. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You're great and awesome. You're worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Guide us today to take your word to heart. Examine us to see if we are spiritually blind or spiritually dull. Show us our desperate need to cry out to Jesus to heal the spiritual blindness within us. Oh God, we need you today. Open our eyes and open our hearts. We need you to strengthen us. We need you to to just come and rub off the, the rough edges of our life and make us ever more like Jesus. Have your way, Father. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Let me speak your words and your ways for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So there are three groups of people with three stories in this passage. And each of, those, each of them teaches us something about spiritual blindness. The first group is found in verses 11 through 13. And it's the Pharisees who demand a sign. Right? They come in verse 11. They argue with him and demanding a sign from heaven to test him. Now, the demand for a sign wasn't so much them saying, Jesus, if you perform a sign, we will believe you and we will surrender to you as the Messiah. Rather, it was more of looking for yet another reason to reject Jesus. If Jesus doesn't perform the sign, they'll say, aha, we knew he was a fraud. He can't even do a simple sign to prove he was the Messiah. Then if he does a sign, they'll either reject it as some sort of a trick or they'll find some reason to use it to condemn Jesus for doing it. Their attitude in verses 11 through 13 is not unlike that of Satan in Matthew 4 demanding or tempting Jesus to perform a sign or like Herod's. Desire for Jesus to perform a sign for his own entertainment in Luke 23, verses 8 through 12. In none of those cases, the Pharisees, Satan, or Herod, was there humility and any sort of willingness to surrender to Jesus. There was defiant, demanding enemies of Jesus who wanted a sign for their own purposes. And really, if you think about it, as far as the Pharisees go... It wasn't like Jesus hadn't performed signs they had already seen. Jesus had openly performed many signs. Just in in leading up to where we are in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had multiplied food on two separate occasions, Mark 8 and Mark 6. Jesus had healed people of all sorts of sickness, a deaf and mute in Mark 7, a demonization person, demonized person. Mark 7, Mark 5, Mark 3, twice in Mark 3, twice and three times in Mark 1. He had killed a woman of an incurable issue of blood in Mark 5. He had healed someone of death in Mark 5. He healed someone of a withered hand in Mark 3. He walked on the water in Mark 6. He calmed a storm in Mark 5, 35 through 41 and more. But the point is there were signs testifying Jesus was the Messiah. The problem with them wasn't there was a lack of signs proving who Jesus was. Rather, it was their problem was their unwillingness to believe the signs because of the intentional hardness of their hearts and the determined blindness of their eyes. The intentional hardness of their hearts and determined blindness of their eyes grieved Jesus. Verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. This sigh is, I don't know, from what I understand, I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch of the imagination. From what I understand, it, it is a word that's hard to actually put into English. It is a combination of deep frustration and maybe even extreme grief, right? He has done all of these things. 
And these people should have been the ones to first recognize him, first acknowledge him, first bow to him. And they're coming in rebellious attitude saying, do another sign, do another one. So he's frustrated, he's grieved in his soul because of it. And he says, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And what he says in his reply is basically this. If the signs you've seen won't convince you, then none will. So no. And he refuses to play their games. But notice in verse 13. And leaving them, he leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. The Pharisees argue and demand a sign. Jesus is not going to play that game with them. He's already given many signs. And so he leaves. And in his leaving, they miss out on everything Jesus could have done in them and through them and for them. They are left in their own spiritual darkness. They miss out on Jesus entirely because Jesus gives these rebellious people exactly what they want. Know Him in their lives. And so the first lesson for us is this. The spiritually blind miss Jesus and everything He could do in them and through them and for them. The spiritually blind miss Jesus and everything He could do in them and through them and for them. Now, since Jesus had given so many signs, the problem really wasn't a lack of signs. That's not why they were spiritually blind. Their spiritual blindness flowed from the fact they loved darkness rather than light. Look at what Jesus would warn us about. And this this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light so that his deeds may not be exposed. Now the problem of loving darkness rather than light, it didn't stay in Jesus' time. It's come right into our time as well. There are many in our day who demand a sign before they will believe in Jesus. But would a sign actually convince them? Well, some, maybe. But for most, no. Because let's be honest, there are signs. Psalm 19 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Creation testifies of a Creator. Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans 1 and 20 says from the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly observed in what he made. As a result, people have no excuse. The intricacies of nature, the 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 way it is set up, testify that there is a creator. Now, I've never met anyone who makes pianos before, but I know there is such a thing as a piano maker. How do I know that? Well, there's such a piano right there. I I don't believe that over hundreds of millions of years, time and chance and wind and sand work together to produce something of that beauty that could make such wonderful sounds. It's just as foolish to believe time and chance and wind and sound and space dust created 
life and breath and all things on the earth. Creation testifies there is a creator. But not only does creation testify that there is a creator and give a sign, but there is an empty tomb. Now, there are some skeptics who reject the idea of Jesus existing at all. But most, understand this, most scholarly skeptics do not. Now, they don't believe there's a God, and they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. But most legitimate scholarly skeptics believe there was a guy named Jesus. And he lived in about the times described in the Gospels. And he taught a lot of the things said in the Gospels. And he died probably in the ways described in the Gospels. And yes, three days later, there was an empty tomb. That's indisputable. Now, they have varying ideas as to why the tomb is empty without there being a resurrection of the dead. But all of their ideas can be refuted in one way or another. And none of their ideas have been able to produce the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone could produce the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether now or even back in the time of Acts. Had anyone ever been able to go to the tomb where Jesus was laid, drag out his body, toss it in the public square, Christianity would have died Right there on the spot. There is a sign, the empty tomb. But then there's also a sign that is just the way the world is. Look at this quote by an atheist. An atheist historian named Tom Holland, but he's not Spider-Man. The, the quote is this. While studying the ancient world, Holland realized something. Simply, the ancients were cruel and their values were utterly foreign to him. The Spartans routinely murdered imperfect children. The bodies of slaves were treated like outlets for the physical pleasure of those with power. Infanticide was common. The poor and the weak had no rights. So Holland wondered, how did we get from there to here? And his conclusion was Christianity. Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding that men control themselves and prohibited all forms of rape. Christianity confines sexuality within monogamy. Holland writes that it's ironic that these are very these now are the very standards for which Christianity is derided. Christianity writes Holland elevated women. In short, Christianity utterly transformed the world. The ancient world was cruel, mean, violent. And if anything, the world around us testifies man doesn't just get better, do they? Society does not evolve towards a better world. It becomes more chaotic. It becomes worse. So what happened to make the world where there are things like hospitals for the sick? There are places for the mentally ill to go and be cared for. Why are there orphanages for the orphans? Why are there places for the elderly to go and stay where they will be cared for? Historically, because Christians started those things. Historically, mental asylums were started by Christians. Historically, orphanages were started by Christians. Historically, places for the elderly to go and not be mistreated were started by Christians. Historically, hospitals were started by Christians. That's why they're saying so-and-so, Baptist, General, Presbyterian. Those aren't just words. Christians started 
most all of the sort of care type of things that we see in the world. Soup kitchens, homeless shelters. The kindness that exists in the world did not exist in the ancient world. Christianity transformed the world. These are signs. But do these signs convince the skeptic? Sometimes. Some skeptics see these signs and they say, yeah, that's true, it's real. But often they do not. As with the Pharisees, it's not because there are no signs. It is because of the intentional hardness of their hearts and the determined blindness of their eyes. The great evangelist R.A. Torrey had a way of discerning between what he called an honest skeptic and a convenient skeptic. An honest skeptic was someone who legitimately had doubts. A convenient skeptic was someone who used doubts as an excuse to reject Jesus and his claims on their life. And he would ask them, if you knew Jesus was real, would you surrender your life to him? And if they said no, he dismissed them as a convenient skeptic along the lines of what we see of the Pharisees in this passage. If they said yes, then he would challenge them. He would challenge them to read the Gospel of John one chapter a day. And before they read the chapter, they were to pray this prayer. Oh, God, if there is any God, show me whether Jesus Christ is your son or not. And if you show me that he is, I promise to accept him as my savior and confess him as such before the world. Tori based this test upon three facts. Number one, Jesus is real and Jesus is alive and Jesus is active in the world around us. And Jesus is drawing people to himself. Secondly, Jesus said anyone who legitimately wanted to know whether he was of God would. Jesus said, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. And if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I'm speaking from myself. Jesus said if someone is willing to submit to God and to do his will, that God will confirm to them that what Jesus is saying is true. And third, God's word is living and active, pointing people to the risen Christ. So then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The problem in our day isn't a lack of signs any more than it was In the Pharisees day. The problem in our day is the spiritually blind love darkness rather than light. And so they reject Jesus. The spiritually blind in our day miss Jesus and everything he could do in them and through them and for them just as surely as the spiritually blind Pharisees did. Now, the second group of the second story is found in verses 14 through 21, and it's based upon the dull disciples. Jesus and the disciples in verses 13 and 14 have have left where the Pharisees were and they're crossing to the other side. And as they do get in the boat and as they go, Jesus tells them in verse 15, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven or yeast is a lump of old dough in a high state of fermentation. 
that was mixed into a mass of dough. In the New Testament, leaven is usually used as a metaphor for moral or doctrinal corruption. It is viewed for its ability and tendency to infect others. Now, there are several characteristics of leaven made it a good metaphor for corruption. It sources from without, meaning it's introduced or it's added to the dough. It works from within. So it works from the inside out. It spreads by contact and it's very infective. So Jesus here is is warning them about a teaching, according to Matthew 16 and 12, that if it came into contact with them, could infect them and change them from who he wanted them to be into something else. So what is this teaching? What is this leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod? Well, consider the last interaction Jesus had with the Pharisees. They demanded a sign to prove he was the Messiah. They did this despite the fact they had already made up their minds about them. In fact, Mark 3, 6 tells us the Pharisees and the Herodians agreed to conspire against Jesus so they could put him to death. Now, this means that their every interaction with Jesus was not really sincere. They weren't actually trying to learn. Right? Jesus had done many signs to prove who he was. But they demanded a sign. And it wasn't because they wanted to know so they could believe. They were always looking for another reason to condemn him, hoping they could find a reason to put him to death. Even if they were interested or they seemed interested in what Jesus had to say or what Jesus was doing, it was all for show. So the leaven Jesus warns the disciples about is the refusal to recognize And embrace the truth about Jesus. Because that's what the Pharisees had done. They refused. Determined they were not. This refusal to recognize and embrace the truth about Jesus. Was behind all of the hostility that we see in them. Now it would be easy to think the disciples wouldn't need this kind of a warning. I mean they are actually disciples. They left the Pharisees. They went with Jesus. They've been with him all of this time. But but Judas, Judas would later seem to reveal that he had been infected with this leaven. Not only Judas, but but notice how they respond to Jesus's warning in verse 16. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. So Jesus is warning them about a spiritual teaching that will corrupt their character And they look at each other and say, he said that because we forgot to bring more than one loaf of bread. Now, not only did they not understand the spiritual meaning of the warning. Clearly, they did not even understand the signs Jesus had performed. Did Jesus need more than one loaf of bread to feed the multitudes? He did not. Jesus hears their discussion. In verse 17. And so he begins to to ask them a series of questions. Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet comprehend or understand? Is your heart still hard? Having eyes, do you still not see? Having ears, do you still not hear? Don't you remember what I've done? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls were left? Twelve. 
When I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls were left? Seven. Do you still not understand? Now, these questions aren't meant to shame the disciples, but to instruct them. He's discipling the disciples with his questions. He wants them to realize that while they didn't have the same problem the Pharisees had, they did have a similar problem. The Pharisees saw the signs and rejected the truth they taught because they refused to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. The disciples saw the signs but didn't understand the truth they taught. They heard a warning about leaven, spiritual warning about teaching, but completely missed the point and began to talk about physical bread because they were worried about not having enough to eat. They saw Jesus multiply the food, but they were worried one loaf wasn't enough to feed everyone. Where the disciples were hard-hearted in their rejection of Jesus and His teachings and His signs, the disciples were spiritually dull in their understanding of Jesus and His teachings and His signs. They were missing the deeper spiritual meaning of who Jesus was, what Jesus was teaching, and what Jesus was doing. So our second lesson is this. The spiritually dull have a shallow understanding of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus has said. Therefore, they often underestimate or undervalue Jesus. Now, here's where we must be humble. Because the reality is the most devoted of disciples, we are still sinners. Disciples of Jesus who devote themselves to studying God's Word are still in many ways dull in their understanding. Like the disciples here, we often focus on the wrong things. We often miss the point of what Jesus has said and we forget the wonderful things Jesus has done in the world, much less what He has done in us and through us and for us. Consider our gathering here today. We gather twice a week in a building devoted to the worship of Jesus. This building has padded seats and is climate controlled. We gather legally without fear of secret police arresting us or other religions busting in to murder us, or the government coming in to hinder our worship or our teaching at all. Now this privilege is denied to brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. And yet, how often do we say as David did, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. How often do we begrudgingly gather How often do we allow the smallest inconvenience in our week keep us from gathering in the name of Jesus to worship our risen Savior? How often do we come only if we have nothing better to do? Are we not as spiritually dull as the disciples were? Are we not missing the point as clearly as they did? Consider God's Word in our hands. We have the amazing privilege... Of holding the very words of the living God in our hands. Not only can we hold the the words of the living God in our hands. We have it in our language. And not only do we have it in our hands and in our language. We have it in our preferred translation. If you don't like the one you have, there's another. And it's easily accessible. 
Historically, men of God such as William Tyndale were burned alive at the stake just for trying to translate the Bible into the language of the common people. And yet, and at this present time, there are about 2,200 languages representing 350 million people who do not have a single translation of God's word in their native tongue. And yet, how often do we neglect our study of God's word? How often do we spend hours a day watching television and minutes a day studying God's word? How often are we like the Athenians, bored with God's word, but seeking some new thing? Are we not as spiritually dull as the disciples? Are we not missing the point as clearly as they did? Consider the gospel message that is good news of great joy about a savior who has come. The gospel message is the greatest message the world has ever known. The gospel message alone is the message of eternal life and forgiveness of sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As disciples of Jesus, we would all say the gospel message has transformed our lives because through the gospel, we have met Jesus, the Savior of all. And yet, how often do we tell others this good news of great joy about a Savior who has come? How much more prone are we to tell someone how to vote than we are to tell them how to be saved? How many times have we seen Christians say something like, if you don't vote for this party or this candidate or this way on this issue, then you're not a Christian and you won't go to heaven. Something that's not actually true, by the way. And yet these same Christians would never tell someone they must repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, which... Is true, by the way. Are we not as spiritually dull as the disciples? Are we not missing the point as clearly as they did? God, help us to recognize our spiritual dullness and be as bothered by it as we ought to be. And then the final group of the final story is found in verses 22 through 26. The blind man, Jesus healed. Now, the story of the blind man being healed is important for many reasons. The most important of the important reasons is because the man was blind. Now, the reason that matters so much is because up to this point in human history, no prophet of God had ever cured blindness. Elisha caused blindness and then restored the sight, but he never healed a man born blind. And in John 9 and 32, it was said, never since the world began, had it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Healing blindness was a miracle of great prophetic significance, according to Isaiah 42 and 7 for the promised Messiah. Now, just as an aside on this, unless I'm mistaken, which is possible, but I don't think I am, but unless I'm mistaken, no one but Jesus ever heals blindness in God's word. No prophet, no apostle, just Jesus. I say that simply to say, be skeptical of any professed miracle worker who says they have cured blindness. 
For they are doing something not Paul, not Peter, not any other apostle or prophet ever did. They are doing the work that Jesus alone did. A work that testified of him as the coming Messiah. Now that's just an extra. It doesn't count on my time. But healing blindness. Something no one had ever seen and had nothing that had ever happened before. Now this story is not only important, but it's also unique. Jesus heals the man in stages. He heals the man in verse 23. And he asks him if he can see. The man looks up in verse 24 and he sees people walking around like trees. Then Jesus lays his hands on him again. The man looks intently and his eyesight was completely restored. Again, unless I'm mistaken, this is the only time Jesus heals someone in stages. The healing of the blind man in stages seems to be intentional on Jesus' part. What I mean by that. Jesus didn't fail to fully heal him the first time and so have to give it another shot. Thankfully, it worked fully the second time. Jesus intentionally healed the man in two stages to give us a living parable. I say it's a living parable. It's living because the story is historically true. Jesus did heal this man in exactly the way described, but... His healing of the man in this way teaches us something beyond Jesus' power to heal physical blindness. It teaches us about Jesus' ability to heal spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness has been the main issue in this entire passage. The Pharisees were spiritually blind, in some ways intentionally on their part. The disciples were spiritually blind, though not intentionally. They were dull. The spiritual lesson of the blind man of Bethsaida is Jesus alone can heal spiritual blindness and that Jesus cures spiritual blindness progressively. So our our main and final lesson, spiritual blindness and spiritual dullness can only be cured by Jesus. Spiritual blindness, whether ours or another's, cannot be cured by any natural means. Now, again, this is important. The point of spiritual blindness isn't try harder. The point of recognizing spiritual dullness isn't to do better. The point of both is to remind us we need Jesus. We need Jesus if we're lost and we don't see a need for him. And we need Jesus if we're saved because none of us have fully arrived. The most devoted disciple among us is still in some ways spiritually dull. It cannot be overcome by reading a book. It cannot be overcome by listening to a sermon. It cannot be overcome through our natural cleverness or any works that we can do. Spiritual blindness and spiritual dullness can only be cured through the supernatural power of Jesus. So what I want to do for the last few minutes of the message is give us two two prayer outlines. One, for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, to pray for ourselves. One, for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, to pray for those we know and love who are spiritually blind. Since all of us are in some ways spiritually dull, we must go to Jesus And beg for greater spiritual insight. Again, 
This isn't something you and I can overcome. We, no matter how much we read, no matter how much we study, how many commentaries we look at, how much we learn the original languages, apart from Jesus opening our eyes to understand the word, we'll never go deeper. We are dependent on him. And so we, as disciples of Jesus, must regularly go to Jesus and beg for greater spiritual insight. As we pray for a greater spiritual insight, we need to follow Jesus wherever he leads us. Verse 23, Jesus took the man by the hand and brought him out of the village. He didn't just heal him right there. Why? I don't know. There was something for some reason, he wanted the man to follow him and go before the spiritual blindness was healed. Make no mistake, again, none of us have fully arrived. We are not in all the ways we're supposed to be. We're not in all the ways Jesus wants us to be. If we want greater spiritual sight, we must be willing to let Jesus take us by the hand and lead us wherever he wants us to go. So we can do whatever it is he wants us to do. Thirdly, we must surrender to whatever Jesus does. Here again is something I can't fully explain. Jesus brings the man out of the village and after spitting in his eyes. Now, Jesus didn't go. I'm not going to touch it, but he didn't lick his hand. He spit in the man's eye. What? What an awful Awful thing. I I can't. I mean, Jesus is the son of God and his spit was holy, but it's still spit. And I don't know how to wrap my mind around all of that. But what I know is this. We're going to have to surrender to Jesus, whatever he wants to do in us, through us or for us. If we want the greater spiritual insight. Perhaps we need to humble ourselves. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we're proud. We're arrogant. And what we need to do is, is to humble ourselves. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe we need to, to, to be more active in service and do something that's, quote unquote, spiritually dirty. Something that's involved in the messiness of life. I, I don't know. But we must surrender to whatever Jesus wants to do. And then we must wait on Jesus' timing. Jesus healed the blind man progressively. So if you and I, as disciples of Jesus, if we come to the altars after service and we fervently and passionately pray these things, we are not going to get up and immediately have all understanding of all truths in God's Word. Instead, it is going to come a little here, a little there, a little more there. Now, I'll be honest. I don't like that. I am, in many ways, impatient. I like to think I have a really good understanding of God's word. I have been teaching it at least twice a week for 20 years. I read the Bible on my own every day. I started reading through the Bible a year, the year Caitlin was born. So I've read through it by this year. I will have read through it 21 times. 22 times? 22 times. (laughs) But... I'm constantly hit by things I don't understand. And I don't like that. I I want the deeper understandings of things and I, I want them now. But it doesn't work that way. 
We have to wait on Jesus's timing and we have to understand it's not going to be a massive information dump. It is going to be a little here, a little there. Hopefully over time we'll begin to see, wow, I'm learning. I see the deeper things now. This is what how we pray for your disciples of Jesus who do not want to be spiritually dull any longer. But we also see this man was brought by his friends in verse 22. Brought his friends to Jesus, brought the blind man to Jesus and begged Jesus. So what we can do again as disciples of Jesus is through prayer. We can take our spiritually blind friends and loved ones to Jesus as well. And as we do, we beg Jesus to intervene. Notice, they begged Jesus to touch him. They they begged, and I use the word beg all throughout because that's important. They begged Jesus to intervene, to reach out and touch the man and make a difference in his life. The beg is important because they didn't just say, hey, Jesus... I know you're a busy fella, but if you have time, you think you could maybe possibly... A friend over here is blind. Could you, you know, just like do something? It's not what they were. They were begging Jesus. Please just put your hand on him. If you're just touching Jesus, there's a desperation in begging. And if we're praying for our spiritually blind loved ones, there ought to be a desperation in us as well. Secondly, we need to beg Jesus to do whatever it takes. Again, Jesus led him away from his friends and out of the village. Maybe our spiritually blind loved ones have friends they ought not be around. Maybe they have influences in their life that are helping keep them from Jesus. And what we need is Jesus to do whatever it takes, remove those things, those hindrances from their life. And again, as we mentioned, Jesus spit on him. Maybe our spiritually blind loved one is proud. And maybe they need to be humbled as well. Maybe they need to be like the prodigal. Reduced to the point where they are looking at pig slop. Thinking that would sure be yummy. I wish I had some of that. But if the spiritually blind miss out on everything. Jesus wants to do in them, through them and for them. Then then if they're truly spiritually blind. We must beg Jesus to do what it takes. Because their comfort is nothing compared to their eternal souls. We must beg Jesus to give them sight. Verse 24 and 25, Jesus heals the man. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6 says that the problem with those who are perishing is they're spiritually blind. And that God is the one who shines light into their spiritual darkness. Now, with this, well, I'll cover that in a second. And then we wait on Jesus' timing. I think for most, going from spiritually blind to spiritually seeing is not an instantaneous thing. I think there is a progression in many people's lives. Perhaps the first progression is the conviction of the Holy Spirit making them aware the fact they need a Savior. And they push back. Right? I would love to say, again, we could come and pray this fervently for our spiritually blind loved ones. And then later this evening, they're going to call us and be like, I, I just know Jesus is the Savior and I believe in him. I wish that would happen. My goodness, you have no idea. It's not likely to. 
very likely it's going to take time. It's going to happen in steps. There's going to be a progression. And we have to pray and give that kind of time. And as we pray for our spiritually blind loved ones, we need to pray less for them to make right decisions and more for Jesus to intervene. God's Word is clear. Humans will not make right choices about Jesus apart from divine intervention. No one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them. John 6. No one comes to Jesus without the Spirit first convicting them. John 16. So often our prayers are, to put it as plainly as I can, they are humanistic. Lord, help them to make better choices. Lord, help them to choose Jesus. They're not ever going to. Sinful humans will never choose Jesus apart from Jesus choosing them first. Our prayers do not need to be, Lord, help them save themselves. Our prayers need to be, Lord, intervene and save them before they go to hell. Because that is where the spiritually blind are going. So, how is your spiritual sight today? Have you realized your spiritual sight is a bit dull? Leaving you with a shallow understanding of who Jesus is or what Jesus has done or what He has said. If so, you're very likely underestimating and undervaluing Jesus in your life. That's why not being your own seems difficult. That's why... Next time we look, when Jesus says, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, some are going to say, no, that's too far. Why are they feeling that way? Because they undervalue Jesus. Maybe you've realized that you're just spiritually blind. And so in your whole life, you have missed out on everything Jesus can do in you, through you, and for you. And in fact, you today understand this. That realization didn't come about because of your own cleverness or your own insight. It didn't just dawn on you that you've been spiritually blind. The realization came about because Jesus opened your eyes and Jesus began to call you to himself. And if you go to Jesus, you'll find him waiting on you with open arms, ready to receive you, forgive you and make you an entirely new creation. And then he'll open your eyes to deeper spiritual truth about who he is, what he has done and what he has said in his word. Now, it's not just my opinion that Jesus can do this. Jesus has proven his ability to save souls and forgive sins and transform people and open spiritually blind eyes. He, he, he did it through what we've seen here and what we see in other places throughout the gospel. We see him. He's done it in the lives of millions. Formerly spiritually blind people all over the world today and over throughout history. And he has the right to do this. He can do this. Because of what he has done for us on the cross. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Our sin had separated us from God and that sin earned us the wage of death. But Jesus came to earth for the explicit purpose of going to the cross and dying in our place. And while everyone dies, Jesus' death is is unique in that he did not stay dead. Three days after his death... He rose victoriously from the grave as the ultimate proof he was who he said he was, that he could do what he said he could do. 
We can trust Jesus to all the things we've talked about today. Not because Jesus was a great religious teacher, but because Jesus is alive. Jesus died and rose never to die again. He is alive. He is at work in the world. He is calling people to himself. He is healing spiritual blindness today just as surely as he was then. But once he begins to open our eyes, we must go to him. For he opens our eyes initially to show us our need for him. He does not open our eyes to show us we're fine the way we are. He does not open our eyes to show us we're good. He doesn't open our eyes to show us our morality. He doesn't open our eyes to show us that we're saved because of the good deeds we have ever done. He opens our eyes to show us we desperately need Him or we too will perish. And so we must respond to that light by coming to Him, surrendering our lives to Him. We come to Him in repentance and faith. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Most of us go through our lives thinking our sin is okay for one reason or another. Whether we don't think our sin is sin or whether we think we have a special deal with God that makes our sin okay, the reality is we're self-deceived and repentance is a realization. I'm wrong. God's right. My sin is a terrible violation of His command and it is against Him. And as we realize that we have sinned, we change our mind. God is right and we are wrong. We do this believing in Jesus, but not not just believing there was a guy named Jesus who lived and died and even rose again, but believing Jesus is the only hope we have for salvation. Believing on Jesus requires us to let go of any form of self-sufficiency, any form of self-righteousness. It requires us to say, if I'm to go to heaven, it is only because of what Jesus has done. No good deeds I have ever done. No good deeds I will ever do. Nothing about me saves me. Only Jesus. And if we do not have that kind of belief and faith in Jesus, then let me be clear. We are not saved. Anyone who thinks they contributed to their salvation through their morality or their good deeds or their religiosity or any action they took is not saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And the moment we add anything to that at all, we abandon salvation and we deceive ourselves. And if we believe Jesus is the one who died for us and the one who saved us, well, we realize we are bought with a price. We realize we are not our own. And we will begin to live differently for the glory of our Savior. So I want to ask you to stand.